0: Well, can I pray for us, and then we'll get started, and I I pray because we need God's help as we go to God's word, and no amount of experience, both from a listening perspective or from a communicative perspective, is able to change and transform our hearts. Am I on? Boom? Okay. Let uh, Let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. God, we're so grateful for this time. Lord, we are thankful, Lord, that you have revealed yourself. Even as Marilla was just talking, Lord, we're just reminded that the entire world thinks that they are cosmic accidents, that they are grown-up germs. And yet one can look at the universe and the stars and say, surely there must be a God. But we are so thankful that there is a God. And as Francis Schaefer says, he is there and he is not silent. He has revealed himself through a written word, it doesn't need to be dissected by scholars or PhDs. It's understandable to even us. And so, Lord, whether this is the first time or the hundredth time that someone has heard the teaching of your word, Lord, would you please, we pray with the psalmist, open our eyes that we may behold the wonderful things that are within it. Fill me with your spirit as we look to your truth. Fill us all. We depend on you now. We pray this in your name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, uh, the new uh, Top Gun movie is the number one movie in the world. How many of you guys have seen that movie? Okay, well Tom Cruise is the main guy and he's famous not just because he does his own stunts but because he is the main face of a religion known as Scientology. David Miscavige, who is the leader of the religion was the best man in one of Tom Cruise's previous weddings. And Tom Cruise says that his faith in the teachings of Scientology are actually what healed him of his dyslexia. Scientology was founded by American sci-fi author L. Ron Hubbard in the 1950s. He wrote 600 pieces of fiction, which is the most published by an author all time. And he is the founder of the religion. Here's what he believes, and here's what Tom Cruise believes. 75 million years ago, billions of extraterrestrial beings were sent to Earth by Xenu, the dictator of the galactic confederacy, which is composed of 26 stars and 76 planets, including Earth. Well, 75 million years ago, Zeno brought the humans to Earth. He dropped them in a volcano and released their thetons into the environment. That's your soul. And now people get reincarnated and all of the negative experiences they have from being dropped in the volcano are why the world is in many ways broken today. People have been affected and effected by this experience and so they're riddled by negative emotions. So people within Scientology, they go through a series of uh, processes called auditing Where therapists essentially try to gather out of them what's really gone wrong in their life. And they pay lots of money for these sessions. And they do it and they reach certain levels of becoming clear, meaning they understand what has happened to them. When L. Ron Hubbard, the leader of the religion or the founder, was asked the most important question of all who is Jesus Christ? Here's what L. Ron Hubbard said He said, Jesus never existed as a person. But rather, he is an electronic idea implanted by the true powers of the universe into the mind of someone between incarnations about 600 BC. The implant is labeled R6 and occurred while this person between incarnations was watching a madman or something. Later on, Hubbard said this Jesus is nothing more than an electronic, mystical, biological implant. And the implant has all of the characteristics of a pedophile. It's bizarre, right? What a bizarre answer to the world's most important question. Who is Jesus Christ? The question that was asked to L. Ron Hubbard is the question that we will focus our time on this evening. Who is Jesus? Well, Muslims believe he was a wise teacher A great prophet, a miracle worker, but not God. Hindus believe that he was an enlightened man and one of their 300 million gods. Buddhists believe that he is a kind and holy man, but nothing more than the Buddha himself. What's interesting is I've asked hundreds of people who they think Jesus is in Ubers, in planes, at camp, and no one has ever responded and said, "'Who cares?' Because everyone has an opinion. Because what you do with the person of Jesus Christ matters. Who really was this man? Jesus. Well, in order to understand who Jesus is, we have to look to his own testimony concerning himself. So turn with me, if you have your Bible, to the book of John. This is the thrust of John's gospel. He's writing in order that we might answer the question, who is Jesus Christ? He's the only gospel writer that gives us the purpose statement for why he is writing at the very end. He says, these things I am writing to you so that you might know Jesus is the Christ, And in believing, you may have life in his name. Everything John is going to write is for one purpose. And it's that you go home tonight, that the people that read John's account know with absolute certainty, Jesus is not a mystical implant. He's not a wise teacher or a great prophet. He is God. And when you believe this, you have life in his name. Now, we're going to land in chapter 8 this evening, but we are going to take the scenic route to get there because it's important. I was telling my dad, like, like, we can't just drop into these massive statements that Jesus makes without understanding the context. Jesus never makes statements in a vacuum. There is a, a rising climax here throughout John's gospel. Well, up until this point in John's gospel, Jesus has been doing powerful signs. He's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. He's giving sight to the blind. He's healing the lame. He's raising the dead. And maybe if you've grown up in the church, you're so familiar with these accounts. They're no longer amazing to you. But you need to think afresh upon the works of Jesus Christ because no one, not even the people that killed him, ever denied what Jesus was doing. In John 3, the Pharisee Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, teacher, who are you? Because we know that no one can do the signs that you are doing unless God is with them. He's saying, we see the signs and something's become abundantly clear to us. You must be someone, a prophet from God. In John 5, John 7, John 10, Jesus will say the same thing. If you don't believe what I'm saying, believe the signs. They testify about my identity. In John 21, 25, the last verse of this gospel, I love this. John writes, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is monumental massive testimony. The miracles that we see in the gospel are just a sample. You could study them your entire life. And John just gathers all of those together and says, this is nothing. This is a mere representation of what happens over and over and over again throughout the three-year ministry of Jesus. John is going to use this word signs throughout his gospel because he's not calling them miracles because signs signify that everything that Jesus is doing points to something more. He's not walking throughout the city of Jerusalem and throughout Galilee saying, ah, here's a trick, here's a trick, purple lion. No, he's doing something. He's saying, hey, look at me. I'm going to perform a sign, John chapter 5, John chapter 6, John chapter 7. I'm going to perform a sign so that you look to me and say, who is this man? Then I'm going to proclaim my own identity And then he's going to be rejected over and over and over again by the people he came to save. There's a pattern in the Gospels. Powerful sign, powerful testimony, and a hard-hearted rejection of the people that he came to save. In John chapter 5, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath and declares himself to be equal with God. This is too much for the Pharisees to handle, so they try to kill him. But Jesus withdraws because his hour had not yet come. In John chapter 6, an entire year passes during that period. We need to understand this because the context is important. And even if you're going, what's what's the importance behind the context? Well, this thrills me. You know why? It's because when we read the account of the Gospels, we're looking at real history. This is a real man. And these details are given to us so that we can go, this is the word of God. So in John chapter 6, Jesus withdraws from the city. He knows that the Pharisees are trying to kill him. And this is a two-year plot on the part of the Pharisees. So in John chapter 6, he's in the region of Galilee. He performs the largest sign in terms of size. He feeds 20,000 people. And at this time, Jesus will give the first of the seven I am statements. These are unmistakable claims to his own identity, to his deity. And if you missed it last week, Jesus says, I am the bread of what? Life. He draws their attention back to the wilderness wanderings in the Old Testament. And he says, you know those people that, that ate that bread, that ate that manna from heaven? Jesus says, that manna was only a foretaste of the true bread that comes from heaven. I am the only one that can satisfy your soul And he looks at them in John chapter 6, he says, you followed me across the Sea of Galilee, not because you truly believed, but because you want breakfast. I will give you something more than a morning meal. I will give you myself. I am the bread of life. At the end of chapter 6, the people that were saying, let's make this guy king, they say his words are too hard for them, and they leave him. And Jesus looks at the 12 and says, will you leave me too? Now, in John chapter 7, it tells us that the Feast of Booths is near. So here's what we need to understand. There's six months that passes between chapter 6 and 7, and an entire year has passed since Jesus has healed the man on the Sabbath in John chapter 5. And it tells us that the Feast of Booths is at hand. Let's read John chapter 7, verse 2. John chapter 7, verse 2. Let's I'll start with 1. After these things, at 6 months after chapter 6, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Now in 10, look at verse 10 through 13. His brothers wanted to go up because they still don't believe. They think, hey, your power is being diminished. You're not as popular as you were last year. Go to the feast, the booth, and do a powerful sign. So verse 10, but when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. John wants to show us something right now. There's a great feast happening. We'll talk about it in greater detail. But it's almost like something is happening in slow-mo. Jerusalem is alive with one question. Who is this man, Jesus Christ? Was he here at the festival? What happened since chapter five? Are they gonna try to kill him? Is this the one that they're opposed to? Is he gonna show up? Where is this man? Who is this man, Jesus Christ? Now verse 14, but when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. Here's what's happening. It's the biggest celebration of the entire year and Jesus shows up at halftime and he begins to teach. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles is one of the three great feasts throughout the year, but it was likely the favorite amongst the people. It was an eight-day celebration where every single person, hundreds of thousands of pilgrims, even some from small towns who had no synagogue of their own, they would flock to the city and they would build makeshift tents or booths from sticks and branches and leaves, and they would all camp outside. Have you ever been to a church, like, camping trip? Well, picture hundreds of thousands of people for eight days. And here's what they are celebrating. They're celebrating that when God, he led them through the wilderness for 40 years. And as they were camping outside for those eight days, parents would tell their children, let me tell you what God has done. Let me tell you what God has done. It was a time of unrivaled, unparalleled joy. The rabbi said, you have never seen rejoicing if you have not seen the rejoicing at the Feast of Tabernacles. This was a party, And what God had done in the Old Testament and what they were continuing to do at this time is that God gave to his people a series of pictures to be acted out so that the people would never forget what he had done. It was a drama that was ordained by God in order that the people who are prone to forgetfulness would remember God's kindness. Moses had given the instructions for this feast back in Leviticus 23 and they We're to celebrate this every single year. Picture all the cousins that never get to see each other. They're running around the streets. They're playing. And hundreds of thousands of people are here for one event. And midway through the week, the people are wondering, where is the man, Jesus Christ? Where is the man, Jesus Christ? The feast was full of symbolism. And there were things that happened every single year that the people came to expect. One of these traditions was that the priests would go down to the pool of Siloam. I've been there with Don Klassen. And they would go down and they would take these golden pictures. All the while, all the children, all the families are following the priest. I mean, I don't know if you've been to Israel or if you've seen like been to a foreign wedding. This is an absolute party. So they'd go down to the pool of Siloam. They'd follow the priests with their golden pitchers. All the while, all the people are shouting and singing, Isaiah 12, salvation is from our God. We will draw water from the pools of salvation. And they would follow the priest down to the pool and they would follow the priests back up to the temple. And upon arriving at the temple, the priests would circle the altar like this once. And then they would raise their golden pitchers in the air and they would pour the water from the pool of Siloam upon the altar right before the daily sacrifice and immediately after they would do that the celebration would continue this would happen every single day the whole scene was celebratory that god is a good god he is a gracious god he provides what we need most and as they poured the water out on the altar, the people would be reminded of when Moses struck the rock and God provided water in the wilderness to satisfy their parched thirst. But these great festivals didn't just look back and celebrate the past, they propelled the people to look forward and anticipate the future that one day the Messiah would come. Now, look with me at chapter 7, verse 37. It says, now on the last day, the great day of the feast. Pause there. Jesus always picks the perfect place at the perfect moment to say the most remarkable and dramatic things. We read the Bible far too casually. Let's read it again. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. I wanna explain what happens on the last day. Like every other day of the feast, the priests would go down to the pool of Siloam. They would gather with their golden, their golden pitchers, return to make the, golden, or the sacrifice. Uh, by pouring beforehand, they would pour the water down on the altar. But instead of circling the altar once on this last day, they would do it not once, not twice, not three times. But all the priests would circle the altar seven times. And all the while the people are shouting, we will gather water from the wells of salvation. Great is our God. He is our Savior. Thousands and thousands of people. But on this last day, the priest would circle and circle and circle. He would pour the water down upon the altar and then he would go like this and raise his hand, and instantly the multitude gathered would be hushed because in a moment he's about to bring his hand down, and they're going to party hard. But John leads us to believe that it is in that exact moment that the priest gathers and he's circling the altar and then he raises his hand and in this anticipatory moment where all the people are looking forward to singing the Hallel Chorus, Hallelujah, our God is a great Savior. The priest raises his hand and Jesus cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. I watched a movie on YouTube about the Feast of Tabernacles because Jewish scholars talk about it on there. And, and one of the clips I, clicked, I clicked, on, uh, clicked on the other day, it was like a reenactment, kind of like the chosen type of deal. It was a live drama movie. And it says Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles. I'm like, eh, okay, 800,000 views. You know, check this out and it's Jesus and he's rolling around the corner and there's like seven people in the temple. He's got an apple in his hand and he's like this and he rolls around a pillar and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. You know, I'm like, is this Jack Sparrow? No, I'm confused and that's kind of, we think Jesus is overly philosophical, but the reality is here that Jesus at the climax of the feast, in the most hushed moment, Draws their attention to himself. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. This feast of tabernacles. It celebrates not just my provision in the past, but my provision in the present. It points to me. Yes, God provided for you water in the desert, but I am the water the living water that will satisfy your deepest longings. Only I can satisfy your soul. Jesus cries out and he looks at us through the window of God's word and says, do you feel the guiltiness of your own environment? Do you feel your sin and distress? Then listen to the voice that echoes down through eternity. If anyone is thirsty, come unto me. If you don't have a shouting Jesus you don't have a shout you don't have a Jesus of the New Testament because he's crying out it says he stood and he cried out and he looks at people and almost proverbially grabs their shoulders and says are you thirsty do you feel empty do you feel the weight of your sin in your life if you keep on running to broken cisterns to satisfy what only I can then come to me and drink Jesus looks at your soul and says, it's empty. And it's empty because you are drinking what cannot satisfy. This is an unmistakable claim to identity or his deity. Jesus says, there is no prescription for parched souls other than Jesus Christ. Well, what's the response of the people? Verse 40, look at this. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words were saying, This certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? There is still confusion about his identity, but there is no confusion about one thing. Look at verse 46. The officers answered, never has a man spoken in the way that this man speaks. Okay. Look at John chapter 8 verse 12. We're picking up exactly where we left off. If if you read through John in chapter 8 verses 1 through 11, you'll say that this section, you'll see that this section wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. And I think that's an important detail because when we get to verse 12 of chapter 8, we're in the exact same story. We're still at the Feast of Tabernacles that's still our background here. We're still at a great festival. We already talked about one of the first great traditions, and that is that the people would sing and dance as they followed the priest down to the pool of Siloam. But there was another great tradition during the Feast of Tabernacles, another symbol that was greatly anticipated and is worthy of our consideration if we are to really understand the significance of Jesus' next words. Each evening, four great lampstands were erected in the most packed part of the temple. These lampstands or bowls were 75 feet high and the young priest would fill it with kindling. Then they would pour 65 liters of oil in these great bowls. And every single night, the young priests would climb up the ladder and all of the people are packed into the temple court. And they're climbing the ladder and each of the priests has a little torch in his right hand. Climb, climb, climb. Dancing, singing, shouting, our God is great. Our God is great. But once the priests reached the top of the ladder, there would be a hush amongst the people because the priests would light the wick that went up into the bowl, and it would light the oil in those lampstands on fire, and instantly the whole temple would be ablaze. It was a beaming light, not just for everyone in the temple, but for all of Jerusalem to see. And at that moment, the people would then begin to celebrate again. They would then light their torches and they would sing and dance all night long. This great light that the people were celebrating was commemorating what God had done as he he had led them through the wilderness for 40 years. Notice what John is doing in his narrative. John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. What you ate in the wilderness for 40 years, that pointed to me. John chapter 7, if anyone is thirsty, come to me. That water that Moses struck coming out of the ruck, it's about me. John chapter 8, the light that led you, that pillar of cloud, that pillar of fire, Watch where Jesus is going to go. This light symbolized a number of things for the people of God. First of all, the light symbolized God's presence. It symbolized God's presence with the people when they were wandering through the wilderness. It reminded the people that God was not just in a tabernacle. He was with and amongst his people. The pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire was a constant picture. God is not a distant God. He's a near God. He's not over there. He's right here with us. We serve a God who dwells amongst his people. We are so often tempted to think that God is far away. But God in his grace, he he knows the propensities of our heart. And so the Lord provides for them a picture that they will never forget. God is with us. God is teaching his people in the Old Testament, and this is what they're celebrating. No matter where you go in the wilderness, and no matter how dark the night, I am with you. But not only did this great light symbolize God's presence, it also symbolized and demonstrated God's guidance. In the wilderness, there was no identifiable objects. It's not like you're saying... You're going to pass this house on the right, then take a hard left. They're in the middle of the desert. How do they know where to go? Well, Numbers 9 tells us, when the cloud moves, you move. It was their guidance. They, they, they couldn't even trust themselves in the heat of the desert. It's hot. There's mir- mirages that distort even their ability to perceive where they're going. And so the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire by night symbolize That we're not the ones that lead ourselves. God is the one that leads us. He is the one that guides us. But not only was the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire a symbol of, of provision, of his presence, of his guidance, but also protection and deliverance. In Exodus, it says that the people of God were walking out of Egypt... And it says that then Pharaoh became angry and he pursued the Israelites with his entire army. And what separated them from the people of God? Do you remember? A pillar of blazing fire. The light was a symbol that God protects us from the darkness. He rescues us. He delivers us. He's a good God. He's a gracious God. He's a kind God. He rescues us from our enemies. He leads us to a promised land, and he is with us. He never delivers to abandon. He delivers to dwell. And the light in the Old Testament was a constant symbol. We have a great God. He doesn't just get us out of Dodge. He stays with us, and he's taking us somewhere better He lives with us. And the light was also a symbol that one day a Messiah would come. It says in Isaiah that one day the people that live in great darkness will see a great light. This is what they are celebrating. So I want you to imagine the last night of the feast. And that detail is important for us because Jesus is going to say over and over again My hour has not yet come my hour has not yet come, because he's on a divine timetable. But not only that, he knows that the people are going to kill him. He He was not surprised by his death. He came to die. But it says on the last day, because John wants you to understand something. Jesus is never nonchalant about his presentations of the truth about who he is. There's a level of urgency here. Jesus isn't saying, take it or leave it. There's a zeal here, a real burden that Jesus has for those whom he sees right now at the feast and the next day will return to their small towns where they will never, ever see him again. So imagine the scene with me, the last night, the great night of the feast. The people are going home the next day. The young priests are climbing the ladder, 10, 20, 30, 75 feet in the air. They hold out their torch. The people are hushed. It's in that moment John leads us to believe that Jesus cries out, I am the light of the world, verse 12. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus saying, I am the true light. I am the one that rescues you out of the darkness. I am the one who protects you from evil, you look back and celebrate what God has done in the past, but celebrate what he is doing in the present. I am the light that tabernacles amongst his people. In the Old Testament, God was in the temple or the tabernacle. That's where the place where his, his presence was most commonly understood to be known. But John isn't confused and he's not just throwing out words in John chapter one fourteen, when he says that the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. The light that is God is not a hovering cloud. He's a person and he's here. He's here to lead you out of the darkness. He's here because God is a near God. All those events you remember were given and that, that, that you might recognize me when I come. Jesus makes a great claim and then extends a great promise I wanna examine this claim closely for a moment because it's almost like every nuance of grammar is important. Jesus says I, not anybody else, not me and somebody else. He says I am, not was, not could be, would be, should be, I am, present tense, ongoing reality. I am the, not a light. He says I, I alone am, not was, the, not a Light, the light of the world. Not of Jerusalem, but of the entire world. He then makes a great promise He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus says that he is the light of the world because he draws our attention to a certain reality. We live in a world of darkness. Marilla mentioned atheism in his testimony. Whenever I sit down with someone on a plane or an Uber, and they tell me that they're an atheist, even I was preaching at Hume like a couple weeks ago, talking to 15-year-olds, and they're atheists, and I just said, well, what do you do with the messiness of the world? What do you do with your own guilt? You don't have to go looking for darkness. I just became a, uh, subscribed to the Wall Street Journal. I now, I'm officially, I, I get the newspaper, I'm, I'm old. Um, and it's crazy that the deeper you go into the newspaper, the deeper the darkness that is exposed to you. Earthquake, kills 46. Father murders son. Divorce. CEO found cheating on his wife. And you just read account over account over account of the darkness that is rampant in our world. Have you ever sat down with someone and asked them, what's the problem with the world? Well, the problem with the world is that it lives in spiritual darkness. Colossians 1 says this, that Jesus has rescued us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. You and I live in a world that is ruled by the prince of of darkness, And Jesus says, you don't need to turn on your thinking cap to understand this. Look left, look right, look at your phone, look at the news. Are you tired of the darkness? And Jesus says, there is one light in this entire world. And he looks and says, it's me. John 12, 46. I have come as light into the world, so that no one who believes in me will remain in darkness. Jesus says, that's why I came. I've come as a light into the world so that anyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. So do you understand what is man's supreme need then? Your greatest need, the world's greatest need is to know the light of Jesus Christ. Jesus asks you through his living and active word tonight, do you need a way out of the darkness? Do you need guidance in a world of pollution and sin? Do you need protection from the forces of evil? Do you need safety and shelter? Do you long for God's presence? Do you know the way to your eternal promised land? Do you need forgiveness for the sin that is within you? Is your conscience riddled with memories of how you have failed others and how you have failed God? Do you chase a light that flickers and fades? Jesus says, look no further. I am the light of the world. I never flicker. I never fade. You will go home and these lights will go out. But I will never go out because I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I alone can lead you out of the darkness. I alone can lead you to my eternal promised land. I am with you. I am with you. Come to me. There are so many invitations in the gospel And I want to talk about this for a minute. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Do you know what he says next? So come eat. He says, I am living water. So come what? Drink. Then he says, I am the light of the world, so come follow me. Jesus is never asking to be admired. He's never asking to be appreciated. He's never asking to be observed. He's never asking to merely be listened to. He is calling you to partake in what he offers. And this is a personal thing. No one can do this for you. Your heart must ache. You must feel the hunger of your soul. You must feel the thirsty nature of your heart and come to the one who gives you life. Now the question is who can come to Jesus? Who's invited to come and follow the light? Who's invited to come and eat? Who's invited to come and drink? Well, I want you to listen to the scope of those who are invited by paying attention to a recurring word in John's gospel. Don't miss this. John 3:15. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life John 3:16 Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life John 3:18 Whoever believes in him is not condemned John 3:36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life John 5:24 Whoever believes my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. John 6:35 Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 6:37 Whoever comes to me I will never cast out. John 6:47 Whoever believes in me has eternal life. John 6:58 Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. John 7:38 Whoever believes in me John 12 Whoever believes in me There are more Jesus wants you to understand something. You're invited. And it's not a, hey, you're all welcome. He looks at you. He sees your soul. And he recognizes that it's thirsty. And through God's spirit, he says, come and drink. Come and eat. And come follow the light. Are you tired of living in the darkness? Do you live a double life? Does the darkness steal and mar your joy? Come follow the light, and you will live in unrivaled joy in a world that only knows despair. Every single person in this church and every single person you interact with is included in the word whoever. Do you understand that? The question is, why is Jesus so inviting? Look with me at John 8, 24. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. This matters to God. And that's why he's not saying, I am the light of the world. He's crying out, I am the light of the world. He's saying, You live in darkness. You will die in darkness. And you will spend eternity in the darkness unless you come to me. I am not an apathetic Savior. Ball's not in your court, buddy. See if I care. That's not at all my sentiment. My sentiment is follow me. Have you found a better Savior? Have you found someone else to relieve you from the burden of sin? Have you found another one to lead you out of the darkness? No, I and I alone. I am the way. I am the light. I am true food. I am true drink. So come. People don't. People don't come. Why? Turn back to John 3. Verse 19, John 3, 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Exposed but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. People don't come to the light because they love their sin. And don't miss this. That can be either the sin of the prodigal or the sin of the Pharisee. Moral abandonment or moral uprightness alike keep people from coming to the light that is Jesus Christ there are people who think they are too bad to come to the light, and there are other people who think they are too good that they don't actually need him. And Jesus says, I am the only light. I am the only light. Later on in chapter eight, he says that when you look upon the Son of Man when he is lifted up, you will know that I am he there is one savior, Acts 4.12. 4, His name is Jesus Christ. I understand that many, if not most of you in here are members of this church. I look out and I see familiar faces. And so I, I would be, I feel like you're responsible to not conclude here. Jesus says, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Night is coming when I will no longer be here. So there's a reason that Jesus then is going to tell his followers in John 13, the night before he's killed, walk with me so that you might be sons of light. And that's why he looks at his followers in Matthew 5 and says, you are the light of the world. Do you understand you live in a world of darkness and God has given one group of people to shine forth in a world of pollution? Do you know who it is? The man in the mirror. Sometimes I think we get this idea, especially in the last two years, where Christians, the their responsibility is to gather together and huddle all the light into one room and talk about how dark the world is. But Jesus didn't give you the light of his son, Jesus Christ, so that you could look and point at the darkness. He gave you the light that is Jesus Christ so that you would exploit the darkness and shine brightly. That's your mission if you're a Christ follower. Maybe you're so familiar with these words, but let me read them or recite them to you. You have been saved by God, first Peter, in order that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous what? Light. That's your mission, but it's also the only logical response if you're in Christ because you've tasted his goodness. Have you? Have you tasted his goodness? Have you received his kindness? And if not, would you come to the light even this evening? Would you come and partake? Jesus says, come unto me. I will always satisfy your soul and I will lead you to my eternal promised land. Let's pray.